This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. We're starting today a series in the Old Testament book of Judges. So let me encourage you, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's some in the chairs, the backs of the chairs, and uh, under the blue chairs. Uh, Find a Bible, turn to page 212. We're actually going to be reading a few verses from the last chapter in Joshua uh, to introduce Judges. Spiritual identity is experienced this morning, not inherited. That's what we're going to be talking about. The nation of Israel were chosen by God to be his people. He chose Abraham, who lived up in what is now modern-day Iraq. And he said, I want you to leave Ur of the Chaldees, where he lived. I want you to bring your family. I'm going to take you to a land that you don't have any idea where it is. And he took him to this land, which we now know as Israel and Canaan. And actually, the borders of the land that God gave to Abraham extended from the Sinai Peninsula next to Egypt, all the way up to the borders of Iran to the north and India to the east. Much larger than what we look on the map today and see the nation of Israel. All that land God gave to these people, and it still belongs to them. He hasn't rescinded the promise. It's still their land, and they're still his people, although they have not yet come back to him yet. And so we're praying and hoping for that day to come soon. But during this period of time, They lost their identity as the people of God. How did they lose it? Well, they spent 400 years in the nation of Egypt. And most of those years they spent as slaves. And over those 400 years, which is probably about 10 generations, they lost who they were. They forgot who they were. They forgot who their God was. They forgot their purpose. They could only see that for the rest of our lives, we're going to be slaves. I mean, how do you get free from slavery? So they lost that identity, and then God raised up Moses, and Moses came to tell them who they were. He was one of their own. He had spent years in the wilderness, and God revealed himself to Moses there. And he said, I want you to go back to Egypt, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And then I want you, Moses, to lead my people out of Egypt back to their ancestral home, the land that I promised them, the land that I gave to your forefather Abraham hundreds of years before. So Moses does that. You know the story of the Exodus. And, and he leads them across the, across the wilderness. And in a 40-year wandering they had for some other reasons. But they finally were got, got really close. Moses died and passed the leadership off to Joshua, who then led them into the promised land. Um, Joshua was like Moses. He was a man who depended on God. And, and Joshua instilled this dependence on God to the people of Israel uh, throughout his years of leading them. See, Joshua had the blessing of coming from Egypt with Moses. He was one of only two who made it out of Egypt and all the way into the promised land. Somebody tell me who the other guy was. Caleb, all right? They were two faithful guys, and they, they were the only two that got to go all the way in. And he had watched Moses all this time. He had been Moses' second in command. And And so he instilled this dependence on God to the people best he could. And he he knew this was something real that he saw in Moses. It wasn't just uh, empty religion. And and, and that became a part of him. And at the end of his life, 
in chapter 24, verse 23 of Joshua, he issued a challenge, a great challenge to the people of Israel. He said to them, then get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. They're in the land. And he says, we got to chase out the people that worship these foreign gods. Get rid of the foreign gods that are among you and offer your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And, and the verse is not up there, but the people heard that, that challenge. And their response was to him, we will. We're going to do that. Just what you told us to do, we're going to get rid of them. Now, when Joshua died, and, and that will happen, and we'll actually see a little bit of Joshua in the book of Judges, but he died soon. And then when he died, where did the leadership go? It went to the elders of the tribes who were living when Joshua died. And these are men who have grown up. They grew up during the 40 years of wandering in the desert. So they knew from the time they were little boys up until their, until their age now, they knew Moses and they knew Joshua, and they knew they depended on God. And that, so they were to lead the, uh, the people, these elders were to lead them into the land and, uh, and, and take, them, take the land uh, for their own. So uh, these elders were there when they conquered the land. They had seen the Jordan River stop when Joshua led the people across. Uh, they had seen the walls of Jericho come crashing down. So they had seen God do some amazing things. They knew, personal experience, what it was like to have God go before them. But eventually, like everybody else has done, and like everybody in this room will do one day, they died. Who what was to take their place? You had Moses, Joshua, the elders. God set this nation up to be a theocracy. A theocracy. What is a theocracy? A theocracy is a form of government in which God is recognized as the supreme ruler with his laws being interpreted by the ecclesiastical authorities. Well, who are those? What's the ecclesiastical authorities? Well, for the nation of Israel, it was the priests. The priests who went before God, the priests who offered the sacrifices, the priests who led them in worship, the priests who were to be connected with God and be the go-betweens between the people and God. They were to lead the nation. Their priests were to connect them with God and lead them and, and, and be God's representatives, if you will, among them in this theocratic form of government. Democracy means government by the people, rule of the people. Theocracy means rule of God. The theos, God. And so God was supposed to be the king over Israel, if you will, and then the priests would lead the people in following him. But here's a problem. The priests in Israel, who were they? They were, family-wise, they were the ancestor, or excuse me, the, the descendants of Moses' brother Aaron. So they're born into this family. They can all trace their roots back to Aaron as priest. Moses was the, or Aaron was the first high priest. They're descended. So that means this. Their role as priests was not necessarily something that they would have chosen for themselves. None of these boys, when they're growing up, somebody said, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, like little boys, I want to be a fireman or I want to be a policeman or I want, you know, I want to be a football player. All these things that little boys want to be when they grow up. Uh, what do you want to be? Well, a lot of them, I don't want to be a priest, but I don't have any choice. Why? Because it's what my family does. It's who we are. It's our calling. Being a priest was something not that they necessarily chose for themselves. It was inherited. And God chose this family. God chose Aaron and his descendants to be priests. And God expected them to live up to that 
calling. But you know how that works. I mean, people are no different today than they were 3,000 years ago. You know how that works. When the priests themselves had a personal experience with God, they were connecting people with God. When they knew God, they were connecting the people with God and their leadership. But if they simply said, well, this is just who my last name is and I don't have any choice, and yeah, I got to do this this week. And if they're just going through the motions because it was what their family did, or it was what was expected of them, the people of Israel would be, as a result of that, would be disconnected from God for the most part during that time. In your notes, first point says this, spiritual identity is passed like a baton. It's passed like a baton. There has been a great deal of study and talk in the past few years um, because there, I guess those who study the church and so forth have seen a, a growing number of young people who have grown up in the church, who have been part of, of churches, and yet by, when the time they get to be up in their upper class years in high school even, but certainly as they leave home and go off either into careers or into college, they, um, they and, and many of them have Christian parents, they, but there's this increasing number of these young people who, adults now, who drop out from the faith and from the church. And there are a lot of reasons why. Um, th there's always been those, I guess every generation has had those, that as soon as they, they get out of mom and dad's oversight, they kind of do their own thing. And there's a lot of you in this room, because I talked to you and, and I've heard your story, who can say, that's what happened to me. I became a Christian when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. But when I got to be about 17 or 18, when I moved out, when I went to college, I kind of left the faith. And, uh, and, and, but I thank God that he didn't give up on me and he's brought me back. A lot of you have that testimony because I've heard it. Uh, uh, so there's a lot of different reasons why these kids are leaving, but the, the numbers have become greater in recent years. And the most, and, and, for, and there's a lot of them, um, uh, and, and there's a lot of them who are prodigal son kind of kids, and that's some of you as well. And some of you adults, you never met the Lord, period. Didn't know anything about him, maybe, until you were adults. But these, we're talking about kids that grew up in church. And, and the most compelling explanation I've seen it as, is that these kids that do that, and a lot of them will get out, and they'll just say, you know what, I never believed it anyway. I'm an atheist and so forth. A lot of these kids, while they're younger, they just go through the motions. You know what I mean? Mom and dad say, I have to go to church, so I go. And they'll even go through the motion of announcing that they are now believers and, and they may even been, and follow the Lord and, and be baptized or join the church. That was the thing to do when I was a boy. I remember uh, going to the, the Baptist church where we lived, and, and it pretty much was the accepted tradition that when you were, by the time you were 12, you, know, you walked forward during an invitation and shook the preacher's hand and said, I'm ready to be baptized, and they baptized you and made you a member of the church. And, and, but that, and that's still going on today, and, and, but in greater numbers. And so what that means for these kids, so many of them, is there's been no conversion. They're not believers themselves. There's no salvation. There's been no transfer from darkness to light. They, they know the talk because they've been going to Sunday school all these years. They know the talk, but when they get the chance to be on their own as adults, they drop the walk. It's done. It's over. It happens here in this church. We have parents in our church, and some of you right now are hurting 
because you're now adult children have turned away from the Christ and the faith of mom and, and dad to the mindset and the behaviors of the world that does not know Christ. There's no difference in their lives between them and somebody that has never heard the gospel. I listened to a pastor friend Tuesday, had lunch with some pastors here locally. And one of the guys, I know him well, and he, he became a Christian later in life, has six children and um, of his own. And uh, marriage broke up. He's remarried. Got three step. They got nine kids all together. And and he sat down with with us at around the table with lunch and with, talking with parents. And he said, he said, pray for my kids. And I, I've met some of his kids, and I know the story. He said, yeah, my son, and they, several of them live right here on the beach. He's addicted to to alcohol. You know, this one's addicted to drugs. Uh, and, and, he, and he went on and told the stories of their kids, and he's heartbroken about it. He said, would you pray for my kids? And, of course, we told him that we would. But as he told the story about his family, which we, we had some familiarity with, he made the statement, he's, and, and, and I, I'm not saying this is true for all parents, but he knew it was true for him because of the way he had lived when his kids were growing up in his home. He says, it's my fault. It's my fault. And that's got to be a tremendous pain for parents. I know that's not always true, but sometimes it is. And, and, uh, and, and it, it tells us something about, about faith. And here's the point in your notes. You can't force feed faith. I'm a strong believer. Those of you who've been around me for very long, I'm a strong believer in the philosophy that if you live under my roof, you're going to go to church with my family. And, and that's been the rule even before I was a pastor. You live under my roof, you're going to go to church, and that includes youth group if you're a teenager. And my, my kids, and they're all here today, um, will all tell you there was never, not, never one opportunity when mom and dad gave us a choice. You want to go to church today? That was never a choice. Why? It was understood. It's what we do. And, and that also meant this for my kids as they were growing up. I mean, we're, I'm hardcore. My, as my old pastor in Can or Oklahoma, he grew up in Kansas, would say, he would say, he said, I'm hard, I'm hard about, he says, he said, I, he said, I'm strong about, he said, I'm stronger than horseradish on this. That meant my kids couldn't have a job that interfered with what was happening at church. Couldn't work on Sundays because we went to church on Sundays. Uh, my kids couldn't be on a sports team. And one of my kids played college soccer. So, I mean, he was, you know, athletic a little bit above the average. Um, they could not play on a, on, a, on a travel team that took them away on, on Sundays, away from church. And we, by establishing those priorities, that's what we were teaching them. Here's what really matters in life. Because your soccer playing ability one day is going to fade away. Hasn't it, Nathan? It's gone. All right. Your, your ability to play that sport one day is going to fade away. But if your faith is real and your faith is strong, it will stay with you until the day you die and beyond. Teaching them what really matters, what's important. But here's the deal. You can't force-feed faith, and here's why. Force-fed faith doesn't change lives. I've had parents come to me when their kids are little, hey, how about baptizing my son? Well, does your son know Jesus? 
Oh, I just don't want him to go to hell. Well, that's not going to get him into heaven, baptism. But let me sit down and talk, and I'll talk with the kids, and Andy or Bonnie, somebody will talk with the children, and they, they're not ready. They don't grasp it yet. But mom and dad want to make sure they get to heaven. That's not how you do it. Force-fed faith doesn't change lives. It doesn't breed devotion and discipleship. And that's because force-fed faith is not personal. It's not experienced by them. It's someone else's faith, and someone else's faith cannot change, cannot save you or me. And so conversion happens in a life when Christ is experienced, when the Spirit, Holy Spirit, brings new life. That's when conversion takes place. I'm going to have a word of prayer right now, and I want you to join me in prayer. And I'm especially going to pray for parents right now. I want to pray for you parents who your kids have wandered away. They're in the prodigal son mode right now. And your prayer and mine is that they'll come back. I want to pray for your kids that never had a conversion. They never, it's never been personal. It's never been their experience. They just kind of did what they were told, but never accepted Jesus as their Savior. I want to pray for them to be converted. And I want to pray for you younger parents who have parents in the home right now. That you will, by your example, by your love, by your discipline, that you'll point them to Jesus Christ. All we can do here at Nags Head Church, all that is happening up in Calabunga Cove and in the nursery, we are here to assist you as moms and dads to instill and to show them what faith is all about. We can't save them and neither can you, but we can point them to Christ. Let's pray. Hurting parents, God, are here today. I've talked to some already after the last gathering. Those kids have wandered away. And they're wondering themselves, is my child really a Christian or not? And that's not for me or them to say. That's, that's between you and that, that young person. But I pray for those that they kind of feel in their oats right now and thinking they can go through this period of time when they don't need you. And I pray that you'll show them how much they do. I pray for those children that perhaps grew up in church and grew up in a Christian home but never truly believed. And they're out there in the world and the world's beating them up. This brother that shared the story of his kids with me the other day. The world's just beating them up. I pray, God, for them to turn to Christ. I pray, God, for these moms and dads who have young ones still in the home to realize the importance of the example they live, of demonstrating to them what it means to follow Jesus. And that those children, because of their mom and dad's example, witness to them, because of the things they learn here at Nags Head Church, will realize what a wonderful Savior Jesus is and want him as their own. They'll have a personal experience with him. In Jesus' name I pray. What happens then, this is what the book of Judges is about, when a nation of people has chosen, that God has chosen as his own. That's who Israel was. What happens when they turn their backs on him, when they disobey his word? We'll find the answers to that as we go through this Old Testament book. The book of Judges covers 325 years of Israel's history. That's more years than we have as the United States. It covers 325 years. It immediately picks up after the life of Joshua and who was their leader, so forth. We've been through that. Joshua, and then Joshua dies, and 
and uh, it, and says, I want you to go and take this land that belongs to you and clear out the nations that during the 400 years that you were in bondage in Egypt, these people came in and squatted, essentially, is what happened. They, they did took over their, their land that God had given. You've got to chase them out. The squatters have to be removed because they believe in different gods. And if you don't chase them out, you'll start to worship those same false gods. So Moses was elevated, or excuse me, Joshua is elevated after Moses to be their leader and under his leadership. And Joshua's strength was not the same as, as Moses. Joshua's strength was as a military general, but he was a spiritual man. And, he, and he, had, he led them across the Jordan River and he led them to defeat so many of these enemies. And he led them to take, take possession of the land, but their possession of the land wasn't quite what they had been commanded by God to make it. They were to drive out, God said. They were to exterminate the, Pantai, uh, the, the Gentile pagan kingdoms that had moved into the land. And God said, clear them out. This is your land. You're my people. This is the land I've given you. And unless these Gentile nations had converted to believe in God, they had to go. And so Joshua lives out his lifetime, and by he... By the time he finishes his life, that goal has not yet quite been accomplished. There are still seven Gentile nations residing in Canaan, and they didn't want to leave. I mean, if you've been, your family and you've been living in the same place for almost 400 years, why should we leave? Who do you think you are? We're the people of God. This is, we have title and deed to this land. They didn't want to leave. Some of them were even superior in their military might to Israel. One of the nations that they would fight, and we'll see this in Judges, um, they had technology the Israelites did not have in their military. They had iron chariots. First to come up with that. Israel had never seen that before. They didn't have that. So that was a great military disadvantage to Israel. In the book of Judges, we're given the stories of how God's people were oppressed by these pagan, hostile nations. And it's like, you read the book of Judges, and here's what you'll see. It's a roller coaster. They, they go down, and they're oppressed by these nations, and, and, uh, and all kinds of bad things happen. And they finally wake up and come to their senses, and they cry out to God, and God says, okay, and I'll send you a deliverer. And the deliverer comes, and they ride on this crest of peace and, and prosperity for years. But then they, when the judge dies, guess what happens? Back down they go. And that's how it is all through the book of Judges, a roller coaster as they would be oppressed and then repent of their sins. And God would have pity on them and he would send them a deliverer, send them a judge. Really, the judges were military leaders. And his method of deliverance was raising up over the course of these 325 years a dozen different people to serve as judges. And they weren't leaders over the whole nation. They were primarily focused on their own tribes. And they weren't, as I said, they weren't judges like our judges today in a courtroom. They were military leaders. And, and they all, each one of them, we're going to see, they all had their own weaknesses. Some of them, you know what they're, some of you, please understand. Some of them, their weaknesses, for example, was he was left-handed. How many lefties are in here today? Right? That was seen and still is seen in a lot of cultures as being a weakness, you know. And they were left, so there was a lot of different. Another judge by the name of Deborah, there were two female judges. You know what their weakness was? They were women. I'll tell you what, 
when we read their stories, they're not women that you want to mess with, all right? Uh, they had their strengths, but they also, they were seen, all of them seen as having weaknesses. And yet God used every single one of them to defeat their enemies and to restore peace and prosperity to Israel for a time. Um, God willing, what we're going to do as we go through this series is I'm going to approach it a little bit differently than I typically do in a series because it's a different book and it's historical, but it's crammed full of spiritual lessons. And as we go through it together, you're going to be tempted, some of you, because I know some of you and how you think. I watch you on Facebook. Some of you are going to be tempted to find all kinds of political applications in Judges. And there are some, I'll tell you there are some, but by and large, the applications that are in this book are not political, they're spiritual. They're not for our, our country, the United States. They are for believers, they're for churches. So I want you to be thinking about, don't look in this book for Israel to be America because it was not and we are not. But you will see that the nature of people has not changed at all in the 3,000 years or so since these events took place. And, and as you were been told, Judges is a, it's a really a, a graphic book. The things that we're going to read are going to make you kind of, ooh, as you read these things, because there's a lot of violence in here. And, and uh, it's why, uh, why we say it's probably not wise for elementary school-age children to be in here. And, and that's my thought. I'm, I just want to let you know that. It's why we have such an incredible kids ministry on Sundays because this book I'm not going to teach it with children in mind I'm going to teach it for adults and and I'll be honest with you as I read through it I keep reading uh, reading through it and I go oh man how am I going to teach that God and I wondered if, if I should even approach this book maybe I'll just not pretend like it's not there in the Bible but I know that my calling as Paul said Acts 20 27 is to proclaim to you the whole will of God the whole counsel of God. So that's what we're going to do. Judges tell stories from a culture and a time very different from our own. And there are gruesome things that happen. There's lots of war. There's lots of retribution. And so for the most part of the stories of judges, we're going to find them to be difficult and dark. Here's what happens. There's a lot of time spent on all the bad stuff. And then it'll say, and God sent a judge and the judge took care of things. And there was peace in Israel for 40 years. And it doesn't tell us anything about those 40 years. It goes, tells us that one, and there was peace in Israel for 40 years. And then, boom, the judge dies and it goes bad again. So there's a lot of dark and difficult times in the book of Judges, but I think God wants us to know how difficult and dark sin makes life when we live in disobedience to him. God wants us to know that not only do horrible things happen, he wants us to know why they happen, if we can find a reason. And then he also wants to know he sends deliverance to save those who are in those times. And we're going to find Jesus in this book. You're going to be fascinated by that. And lots of the names, as we go through the cities, lots of the names have symbolic meanings to the stories. But here's a book that ends, the very last sentence in this book, in the book of Judges, says this. In those days, after these 325 years since Joshua has died, and they're supposed to be led by the priests. They're supposed to be a theocracy, meaning God rules. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did whatever he wanted. Everyone did whatever he wanted. When we do whatever we want instead of what God wants, here's what we have done in our own lives. 
we have elevated ourselves as gods. Whenever we do what I want, not what God wants, I'm saying to God, I'm going to be the God today. I'm God on this deal, Lord. This is my decision, not yours. I'm going to follow me. And there's a name for that. It's a religion. And the name of that religion is humanism. Humanism, what's that? Humanism is the attitude that no one should be able to determine what is right or wrong for me, but me. You ever heard that attitude from anybody? The attitude that no one should be able to determine what is right or wrong for me, but me. That says I'm my own God. And here's one departure from much of the world today away from God. It's humanism, and it's prevalent in our culture today. It even infects the church. You see, you cannot believe that this book is God's word without also realizing that the Bible conveys absolute truth. That's what's found in this book. Absolute truth. What does that mean, Rick? Absolute truth means there are some things that are wrong and some things that are right according to the God who inspired these words. God says there are some things that are right, some things that are wrong, and those things don't change. They're not up for debate. They're not changeable according to the whims of the times. But here's what mankind frequently says, and it's where we, we see this in our culture. But we don't accept absolute truth. Sorry. We want to make up our own truth. And so that's what happens. By the way, if you ever hear someone say, and you college students, uh, you'll hear a professor say this in a philosophy class sometime, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Look at him and say, you know what you just said? Absolute truth. When you say there's no such thing as absolute truth, you've just announced absolute truth. You've just contradicted yourself, prof. When everyone does whatever he or she wants, the indictment is that they have abandoned God's truth and God's will, what God wants. And when, that's when in, when in a culture what happens is what's wrong becomes what's right. The period of the judges were 350 years of ups and downs of peace and oppression in Israel. That's the conclusion of this period of history. Everybody did whatever they wanted to do and didn't care what God said was right or wrong. So here's what we're going to, let me finish up with these thoughts. In this period of Israel's history, you're going to see three themes repeated over and over. Number one, because they failed to drive out the pagan idolaters, Israel fell into idolatry and suffered its consequences with God because they would not remove them. They adopted the religion of the people in the land. And remember now that God had given them a law. And at the top of the law, we know the law best as the Ten Commandments. When you start reading the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, it starts with these words. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for their father's sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. And they would break that law over and over and over in the book of Judges. Second theme you'll see repeated, possession 
of what God gave them dependent on their faithfulness to God. What are they supposed to be possessing? This land. From the Mediterranean to India, from the Sinai Peninsula to Iraq, they're supposed to possess this land. This is their land. God gave it to them, but they're not going to keep the land that they're supposed to possess as long as they're unfaithful to God. Now, as Christians, God has not, God's promise to us is not a possession of land, right? It's not. And I own some property, but that's not because in the Bible somewhere, God said, hey, Rick, you and Gail are going to own a house in Kitty Hawk one day. That's not there. As a Christian, the possessions that God has promised us are things like that are found in Galatians chapter 5 when Paul talks about, hey, if you walk in the Spirit, here's what you get. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, temperance, faith. Those things are what we're supposed to possess as believers. Things like, we're supposed to possess things like peace in the midst of the storm. Seeing God answer our prayers that seem impossible. Learning how to endure suffering. Those are the things we're supposed to possess as Christians. But if you or I turn our backs on God, we miss out on those possessions daily in our lives. We miss out and we start worrying and fretting and, and everything that goes on that's contrary to God's promises. Number three, God's unchanging faithfulness, loving kindness, and compassion for his people is a theme in this book. Unchanging. Despite the fact that they abandon him over and over and over again, when they come to their senses and they cry out to him for help, he sent a deliverer over and over. It's not unlike you and me that when we sin and we wander and, and then we realize what, what we're doing and we grab hold of that promise in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do what? Forgive us our sins and cleanse us, gives us, and says, okay, now, don't do that anymore. It's forgiven. Why, why did he do that with Israel? Why does he do that with us? You know what the answer is? It's really simple. The answer is because you and I and Israel in their day, we're, we, we, we are the apple of his eye. We are, we are we're the target of his affection. He loves us. That's why. So let's finish today with this thought. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that means you are a part of God's chosen people here on earth. You're part of the, the family of God, the church. He's called you out to be his own. That's your identity. That's who you are. And your calling is to demonstrate this life that he's given you to a world that doesn't know Christ, you're to show the world, I'm to show the world what Christ-like living means. But here's the problem. Same problem with them in Judges. You know what's all around us in this world? It's all around us at work. It's all around us at school. It's all around in our neighborhoods. It's all around everywhere we go. You turn on the TV and you get bombarded. with. You know what's all around us? False gods. False gods are everywhere. Gods that tell us, hey, if you'll... Devote yourself to me. I'll give you fulfillment. I'll give you contentment. I'll give you purpose. I'll give you prosperity. All the things we crave. But let me just say, the truth of the matter is, the absolute truth of the matter is, 
those gods cannot deliver what they promise. Yet how many Christians are simply going through the motions, picking and choosing how and when we're going to obey Him? How many of us do that? I do. I'll just tell you the truth. I do. Sometimes, God, I don't want to do that. I'd rather do this. I want to experience God's work in my life. I'm 61 years old. I don't know how much time I've got left. But I want to experience God's work in my life. I want to experience God's work in my church. I don't want to just hear others talk about the good old days when they knew God. They loved God. How about you? Maybe like the Israelites, you can remember times when you did really strongly follow God. When there was a deliverer in your life. His name is Jesus. And you, and you just kind of let him take care of things for you, but maybe you've the false gods have pulled you away. They've replaced your devotion to Him. Let's bow and pray. I thank you, God, for your amazing love toward me. I thank you that when I was a 10-year-old boy, I experienced you. By putting my personal, my own faith and trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross to pay for my sin. And Lord, my life has been in many ways like those in the judges. My life has had its roller coaster moments for sure. But I want to thank you, God, for your faithfulness to me. And that Jesus, you promised that you would never leave, that you would never desert me. And that's your promise to all of us here today who know you. I pray, God, that we would, as we go through this, this study in Judges, we would see, Lord, the ways that the world pulls us away from you. And, and the consequences that come from that. And I also hope and pray, God, that you would help us to realize that there is a king in our lives. And he deserves his place on the throne of our hearts. And because he's king, because he's a ruler, I'm his subject. I have no, I really don't have any right to say to him, I'll do my own thing, thank you. Help us to fall in love with Jesus. If need be over again. This day. In his name I pray. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.